What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to the Thrive University podcast. I am your host and chief energy officer, Jeremy Abramson. And if this is your first time here, welcome. I'm so grateful for your support. I'm so grateful for your presence. And in case you weren't aware, Thrive is an acronym that stands for thoughts, habits, relationships, intention, vitality, and embodiment. And this is an acronym that I created to really create a framework to teach you the things that we never learned in school. And my intention with this podcast is to bring on world-renowned guests to break down their success, their breakthroughs, their obstacles that they've overcome to create massive amounts of success, health, and wealth in their life. So I'm so grateful that you're here. And now let's get to today's episode. But before we start with today's episode, I wanted to make an announcement that I'm so excited about. I just launched my Magic of Microdosing free course. This free course has over 10 videos where I really break down the neuroscience of microdosing and talk about how this medicine can potentially lead to massive transformation and healing in your life. So if you've been curious about implementing this medicine, this is a great resource for you to tap into. And again, it's 100% free. So make sure to visit the website magicofmicrodosing.com or just hit the link in the show notes below. Much love, y'all. What is up? We are back. (laughs) Thrive University podcast, baby. And yo, I'm going to be, I'm going to be fully honest because this is, this is one of the most excited moments in terms of the podcast for, for guests that we're bringing on. I got the one and only Daniel Carcillo in the building and, um, Daniel, I didn't even bring an introduction to read out because I really just wanted to give you the opportunity to do your own intro. Sure. So who is Daniel Carcillo, bro? Yeah, that's uh, that's a complex question. How much time do we got? Um, we, got we got 90 minutes, but just <laughs> just how do you want to kickstart that? that um, yeah, man. So I'm, uh, I'm a guy who grew up in Canada. Um, you know, I got uh, I got an older brother, younger brother, and my whole family's still there. Um, but I really gravitated towards the sport of hockey from from a very young age. And uh, most people that know me know me through kind of my past life, which was, you know, my nickname was Car Bomb, and I was a bit of a menace on the ice. Uh, <laughs> you'd love to have me on your team. You you hate to see me coming in the building when our team was playing yours, and I. I just really loved the sport. I loved um, being a part of uh, a community uh, in a room Mm. with a bunch of guys working towards one common goal. And, um, and yeah, I, I really gravitated towards that sport. I moved away from home at 15 years old. Not a lot of people know just about how young and how quickly you develop in that sport. So moved away three hours away from home, left, you know, everybody that I knew, my friends, family, to go pursue this dream. I was drafted at 17, turning 18. So in high school, I was drafted to the NHL 72nd overall. And I turned pro at 19 uh, as soon as I graduated high school. And I've been in the United States 
pretty much ever since, about 90% of my time. Um, and yeah, I mean, I had a, an amazing 12-year career. It's afforded me a platform. It's also afforded me knowledge and, and why we're speaking uh, because I've had to use plant medicine, fungi, uh, to get better after seven diagnosed concussions. Uh, I fought 164 times in the NHL. I won two Stanley Cups with the Chicago Blackhawks. And... You know, I'm not going to lie, I struggled mightily. <clears throat> when I left the game, I had mild dementia symptoms, you know, headache, head pressure, slurred speech, um, insomnia problems, appetite issues, short-term, long-term memory loss, anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. And I was working through these things through the medical system for you know, the first five years when I retired in 2015 at the age of 30. Uh, and the last five years has really been dedicated towards uh, getting the message out in a very responsible way about how you can use different tools that you speak about a lot uh, to your advantage to recover your brain health and, and quality of life. And uh, I'm grateful that um, I have my own health. Um, I've created businesses out of that. But uh, for the most part, man, I'm rooted in in my family and being present for my three children and, and the fourth that we have on the way and, and uh, trying to be the best husband and friend and, and business partner that I could be. So that's the Coles notes. Yeah. That's fucking amazing. That's amazing, bro. Um, I know you mentioned when we were talking outside too, you mentioned your childhood growing up in Canada, two brothers, um, Italian household, mm -hmm. right? So take us back a little bit to kind of some of those childhood experiences that shaped who you became known as car bomb, this fucking menace on the ice, <laughs> right? Like how did those early moments in life contribute to who you became as an adult, as a player, as an athlete? Yeah. So <clears throat> like my, like my oldest, uh, Austin, I'm very, I'm an empath. I'm very sensitive to a lot of different things. And that was no different me growing up uh i was the middle of of three uh in an old school italian household where you know our parents do what the best that they know how to do right and so when you step out of line you get hit um i didn't think that my parents knew just how that that affected me um and so we've since you know had conversations about it when we were older which is which is great and um and so like from those instances, what I was really drawn to, and in Canada, like when you're born, you come out of the womb with skates on, they say. As soon as you can walk, you're in the, the community hockey rink. And I grew up with in a town of 7,000 people. So it was a farm in town. And uh, really everything did revolve around the rink. And, you know, with that anger, confusion, frustration, even though I had, let me be very clear, like I had a very amazing upbringing where where you know we never locked our doors and and we had a very tight-knit community and you knew where guys were on any given day but where all the bikes were the skateboards etc there mm. never any crime or, or anything like that it was it was an amazing amazing upbringing in hindsight now trying to bring up kids in in this world um and so you know from a very early age though i was i took that kind of anger and confusion that I felt, which I think we all are trying to figure out when we're young. And I found this sport where it's like the best anger management that you could ever imagine, where if you're going to touch this puck, then I can try to take your will away to play by, you know, physical contact, right? So I was very good at it. Um, and, you know, a lot of 
other parents in the, in the rink if they were playing against, you know, I feel bad for my mom now because she's probably walking on eggshells around the rink because I'm just out there just smoking kids. And um, everyone has to understand we, we did that from four years old, right? They start hitting now at 13, but back then, you know, we started at four. So, um, you know, that was uh, just an outlet, like a really good outlet for me. And as I got older, I realized pretty quickly that um, I had an opportunity to make something of myself, to, to get out of this small town and, and to possibly do something, you know, really impactful uh, for me, for, for my friends, for my family. And, um, and yeah, man, after I was drafted at, at 18, um, you know, well, I just take a step back. <clears throat> when I did move away from home, hockey's very cult-like, so there's a lot of hazing. Like, uh, and it's very rooted in some pretty dark stuff. Um, you know, I'm sure you've come across some of the videos that I've talked about where I brought a class action lawsuit against, you know, the Canadian Hockey League where, where this is very, very normalized. And I went through it. Um, it was, it was really difficult for my whole draft year. And I can see now in hindsight with the therapy I've had and, that that really formed this person that if I look on the ice now, I can barely recognize, you know, both in mm -hmm. pictures and, and the way that I conducted myself because I really did thrive off of hurting people. Um, but that is how we got taught the game. Like that if you wanted to touch that puck, I was going to take your will to touch it away. It wasn't more so about scoring goals. And as soon as you hesitate, I see it. The people in the stands see it, and then everybody on the bench sees it. And so then it's a matter of, right, it's like a wounded animal. And what do you do with a wounded animal if you're hunting something? Well, you kill it, right? And you kill it as fast as you can. And that's the type of mentality that we had to have. And that's the type of way that I governed a lot of my life because it's very hard to shut it off because you're playing from a young age. You're playing 68 games a year. You're playing 82 games a year in the NHL. So um, governed a lot of my life, but um, there were some dark times, some some bright moments for sure, uh, camaraderie and, and the guys that I've met. But, uh, yeah, it's it's been an interesting ride for sure. Yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing that. And one of the videos I did come across was you sharing – more specifics about like some of those hazing experiences as a rookie. I think it was like 2002, 2003, maybe. Mm -hmm. Can you just maybe share a little bit of that and like, and, and kind of what your, what, what was going through your mind witnessing some of those things and going through some of those things yourself? It was a man. It was a bit of a still is like when I think back to it, it's a, a little bit surreal because you have this, this power imbalance between coaches, management, and then players. Mm. And in hockey, if there's ever one bad thing said about you, as far as like a teammate goes or, or who you are as a person within that team construct, you are done. Wow. You're, you're done. So when I got to Sarnia, it was... First of all, we had 12 rookies, which is not normal. Usually you have two, three, four. Uh, but when we got there, we had a veteran group that must have got it 
like 10 times worse than we got it because abuse is easy to pass on. Uh, but they were starting to do things like, um, you know, paddle us every time we got to the rink, we'd have to stand in front of our stall. Um, the goalie sticks a lot bigger paddle than a normal hockey stick. Um, so each guy got a lick on us. Like we would have to, you know, strip and, and they, they hit us and we had welts on our ass. I mean, this is a daily experience. Um, there's instances where in the showers you couldn't shower before a veteran. You had to wait. And if you if you had to wait outside the shower, that was a good day because they would split us up six by six and each other day they would cycle where we'd have to sit, you know, back to back, naked, in a shower. Some guys would pee on us, some guys would spit chew on us. Um, there was a, a ritual called the hot box which is like when you're on the Greyhound buses, you know how small those buses are. They would uh, make a strip um, they would tie our clothes together, throw our clothes in with six guys in there, throw piss cups in there through the vents, chew cups, got super hot, hence the name hot box. You had to take your clothes off or untie your clothes, put your clothes back on, then you could come out. Um, these are like very normal things that happen that everybody just thinks, well, you're a rookie. Like that's, that's what needs to happen. <clears throat> now, mind you, I preface, I was saying this happens in junior, that type of stuff doesn't happen at the pro levels. You know, the worst that you get it is you have to pay for a very big bill at a rookie dinner. Um, but I could see how angry I got with, with that type of treatment. And I now, and after my career, um, I could see how that governed my life for a good six or seven years at addiction issues, at relationship issues. Uh, I was very like isolated. If I look back now, I was definitely dealing with depression and some anxiety. And, but it was also, it's a catch 22 for me because I don't know how much of that fueled how good I was on the ice. So without that experience, I don't know if I would have been able to play as long as I played. I wasn't like a natural fighter. I didn't like have an instinct to actually hurt people, but that was like a really big part of what I, what I did. I, I could skate, I could hit, I could, I could shoot, I could score and I could change the momentum of a game with mm. one hit and one fight. So it's like a really nice thing on your resume that kept me around the league for 12 years. So, you know, it definitely, brought some dark times, uh, in my life. Like I said, I fought 164 times and, but I mean, you know, it's kind of, yeah, nobody just, just the lawsuit that I, that I filed to the NHL, my lawyers, I'm like, how many fights did I actually get into? And, um, did that require them to literally like go back to and count watch them, a yeah. shit ton of game tape or like, well, there's hockey fights DB. So okay. you can actually, they track every single fight every single fight. And I was good at what I did, like very good at my craft. I probably lost maybe four or five of those, like outright for sure. Um, but you know, you get a lot of trauma, not only from that, but from the hits and concussions and, but, uh, man, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for the world because the position I'm in now with how good I feel and, and, you know, with, position that my family's in and, and the friends that I have that I'm surrounded by and, and how good my, my life is now. It, I don't know. I don't know if I'd be here without all of those experiences and without being grateful for them. And I really, that's a really nice place to get to, you know, it's where, where you're like thankful for going through those harrowing experiences. And, you know, I see you talk a lot, you know, in your posts about, not making things easy. And I, I truly believe 
like I try to do that with my kids. I don't put them in harm's way, but I don't make it easy on them. Mm. You know, like I don't, when they fall, I was always the guy and I, my mother-in-law would yell at me and it's hard to like, well, a baby, you should pick it up. And I, I don't, I let them get themselves up, you know, and they start learning these incremental things that life, because if you don't do that, then they get out of the house. Life is hard, man. It's, it's, it's difficult as you know, being a businessman and entrepreneur, Yeah, people like you, you can't really take them at face value all the time. So you have to tr- almost train um, individuals that come out of your house to be, to be, you know, somewhat of a fucking savage, you know? It's funny because it's so funny because like as we were talking, I wrote this down and you just kind of touched on it. Is I feel like one of the things that's really lacking from our society and culture today, especially as men, is there's not really any legitimate rites of passage. Mm. You know, at 13, I got bar mitzvahed and I was told that I'm now a man. And I, I, I look back now and I'm like, that's some absolute bullshit. You know, um, it forced me to like learn how to speak in front of people, I guess, which is a valuable skill to have. But like, I think it's so important, bro, for young boys, young kids to have that rite of passage, whether that's like an ice bath, whether that is just doing something extremely fucking difficult that's going to force them to unlock something inside of their brain that they didn't know was possible. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, man, I take my boy anytime I can. I take my boy because we're, you know, we're outnumbered right now, uh, three to two. And I just, I take him with one-on-one time. We either go, we go golf or we go fish or we, he's got a, like a pretty sweet mountain bike and I love the cross country biking and the trails and I go and take them and he um he doesn't get this from soccer because the coaches are so worried about what the parents are going to say because they're always recording the practices but I want them to run suicides at the end of the practice like you don't have to make them puke it's not a hundred degree weather but they need to understand how to move their body and when their body communicates to the brain that they're done they can tell their, the brain can tell the body based off of your spirit and, and no, we're going to go a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And then when they start learning that and incrementally gain that type of confidence and that independence that, that the body doesn't dictate, the mind dictates, you can, the only way that I know how to do that is through sport and, and through bike riding. Right. So like when I'm like behind my boy, you'll hear me like, go, like I could tell he wants to quit and I'm just motivating motor. And then he gets to the top of the hill and he's elated. And he's like, so surprised the first three times that he could do that. And that builds confidence. It builds character and it builds this sense of independence that no matter what challenge can come, you can handle it, you know, but you can't train that unless you put these kids in harm's way. And Maybe harm's way is not the right term, but you you have to make them feel some type of way, some type of suffering, and then they have to overcome it. And then boom, you're at step one and then you're at two and you're at three. And this is why like hockey players, hockey in general, it's just, it's a collision sport, right? It's, it's not a contact sport. Um, Mm. And so, and there's no out of bounds. So when you talk to like hockey guys that, you know, are 20 years old, you think you're talking to a 35 year old, you know, because these kids are already, 
they've been through so much. And um, so I'm, yeah, man, I'm super grateful for that sport. My boy wants nothing to do with it. And I'm okay with that because I lived in rinks, but there's other ways for me to, for me to train them for sure. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like in terms of fatherhood, all of the shit that you endured and experienced as a kid and like growing up playing hockey and all of those challenging experiences really wired in you like challenge obstacle suffering yes this is very beneficial and there's a much better way <laughs> to to infuse that into my son's life my wife thinks i'm crazy man because now i'll go number one she's like why don't you bike in the morning and sometimes i do but this time of year like it's a little it's not cold by any means, but for me, it's not hot enough. Yeah. Right. So I wait till noon. So my lunch is a two hour bike ride while everyone's eating. I go to the, I go to the trail. I don't go to the trail in a t-shirt and shorts. I go in black pants and I glow in, in a black long sleeve shirt because I want to feel the sun. I want to get, I want to get heat. Now I've started to like, now that I'm in, in even better shape, I put a garbage bag on some days under my shirt. And she's like, what, <laughs> what are you doing? And I'm even like on the ride and on these, I, I try to make myself suffer and, and hurt for a little window. It's only, it's a 45 minute ride, right? Anybody can do anything for 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, but I do like to put myself in harm's way, even though you're not under a real threat um, because it just feels good. And you get that dopamine release. You feel like you're you're walking on cloud nine. You're completely clear. And you know, and then I like I have a cold plunge at home and do the cold plunge because we, growing up, we would do them since we were 14. Man, in every single rink, hot tub, cold tub. So it's like kind of it's hilarious that like everybody's now just kind of you know the general public's waking up to it. But uh, yeah, man, it's great, great for recovery. No lactic acid. Um, yeah, you feel if you can if you can stomach it you know, for two or three minutes, but, you know, go scroll through your phone you get lost and for 30 minutes, you know? So it's, I, I, I really realize now like suffering, chosen suffering is a prerequisite for success as an adult. Like if you don't go through obstacles, if you don't go through adversity, if you don't go through those challenges that push you to your limits, you're never going to actually realize how powerful you are. Absolutely. And I love what you said about like how those, the, specifically with like the bike riding with your son, how that cultivates confidence. And I, I'm not a parent yet, but I think a lot of parents love their... I would say a majority of all parents love their kids, right? Oh, yeah. And they think sometimes that the best way to show that love is like to hold their hand through everything. And that leads to a generation that's been given like eighth place trophies. And there's just like <laughs> this sense of entitlement, like yeah. that everything's handed to you. Yeah, we were at a, um, we were at, you know, Nazareth, this, this soccer, um, this, this Catholic soccer program where everybody won. And they weren't keeping score. And I can I understand from three or four, like, you know, kids at that age, they, they probably don't care, right? Yeah. Uh, but you start getting into five or six or seven years old. Can I swear on this part? Why the fuck are you going to practice? Yeah. Why the fuck are you training? You're training because, you know, if you put the work in at practice, 
then you're going to play better as a team at the game and you're going to win the game. That's the, that's the whole point, right? Like, and if we're not training our kids that losing sucks and winning feels fucking great, then the loser will always stay the loser and they will never want to pick themselves up and be like, well, we have to, we have to play better. We, we should practice. Maybe we should do an extra hour at practice this week so that the next time that we, we see this team, we can play better. Right? Yeah. We, have, we have a chance to beat them. I mean, if you're not, I have a very skewed perspective or look outlook on life because I played a game my whole life. But like even when I'm in business, you know, and I'm, I'm in these conversations, at the end of the day, it's always me versus somebody right in a negotiation and so i feel like the better trained individual who can sustain more stress and stay calm through the stressful moments can think more clearly you're in the moment you're more present you can create and gain more data points to use it sounds bad but against this person who wants to beat you right who wants to get one up on you so that's how like exercise and and this game like type of mentality and i mean kids coming out of my household you know again they don't suffer unnecessarily i don't hit my kids i, I i've never believed in that yeah. right i've never believed in in making my kids hurt but they 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 clean up after themselves you know they they don't go out and play with their friends unless their homework's done after school. Like they have responsibilities and chores that they need to do because at the end of the day, my parents provided me a very nice life. They're provided an extremely nice life. Everything around them is, is taken care of. So I would be doing them a disservice if I didn't govern the way that I raised them in this manner. Now you mentioned the importance of really being present for your kids Mm -hmm. and being present for your wife. This is something that I feel like all men really need to step into, Mm -hmm. especially when they become fathers, is cultivating that level of presence and really being emotionally available for the people in your life that you love and care about. I'm curious to know, like, you had a nice childhood in many ways in terms Mm -hmm. of like having things provided for you. Were you kind of provided that container of where you felt like, for instance, like you could express yourself in any way? Because (laughs) what I'm, what I'm curious about is like, let me, I'm, I'm, I know exactly where you're, I'm interrupting interrupting myself now because, (laughs) because there's this quote that you said, it was, uh, when you're singularly focused on a goal, it's scary what you'll accept to achieve that goal. Yeah. And I'm thinking back to you being in that locker room, 2002, 2003, and you're being whipped, you're being slapped, like you're being fucking, you're having piss thrown on you, fucking all of that shit. And and that quote resonates with me because it's like, like well, could you, could you imagine if I let that, those pieces of shit govern what I was going to do in my life? Mm. You know, like there's no fucking chance I was ever going to quit because there's a handful of guys that were clearly like fucked up in the head. But in my life, like there's always been barriers. And in my life, nothing has really ever come easy for me ever. 
even in business and it doesn't matter what, like that's why on Instagram and these videos and like I show people a lot of different sides of me because that's what it is. You know, if I just show people the neighborhood I live in and the car I'm driving and I mean, it takes a lot of fucking work to get there. And I live a very modest life because I don't need much, you know, but if I ever, if, if something was standing in front of me that was going to stop me from a goal, I'm either going to go fucking through it or I'm going to find a way to go around it or I'm going to influence other people to, to remove that fucking, that block, you know? So there's a lot of different ways to attack a singular problem, but there's no fucking, I've never, ever allowed individuals, groups of individuals, a person, a team, a coach, a bad personality ever deter me from my goal, you know? And sometimes like I'm not perfect. You can get lost for a little while, you know, days, weeks, months. I've been lost for years, Mm. you know, searching. But when I get something in my head, like I knew, and, and the one thing when I retired, it was that I was going to get better. I was going to find fucking something and I was going to get better. You know, yes, suicide came into my, into my thought stream, like towards the end, there was three or four weeks where it got really scary, really dark, but I always had this little light, this voice saying, go try that, go, go to a, go to a farm in Denver in a decriminalized city and go take go take magic mushrooms. Like maybe that could be it, you know? And I, I, I'm the type of guy where I'll, I'll book a flight no matter what happened. I woke up that morning, every single fiber of my body and being in my brain was telling me, do not get on that fucking flight. Mm. Do not get on that flight. And, uh, and I did, and it, it brought me back, you know? So would you say that experience with mushrooms helped you overcome those suicidal thoughts? No, it didn't help me. It saved my life. Wow. Yeah. Mushrooms showed me why I was suicidal. Mm. And it... What was that? It's because of me. What was the... What was the deeper root cause of the suicidal thoughts you had? It was me and the way I was governing my life. And, And all of the negativity that I was bringing on myself. You know, I thought I was doing a really good job when I first retired from the NHL. Because I branded myself like a mental health ambassador or, or, um, you know, a, a concussion advocate, right. By just using my platform to talk about how badly I was suffering. And one week I would go and I'm going to do hyperbaric chambers this week. Like come follow me and maybe this could work for you, you know? And then I would say this either worked or it didn't, but don't take my word for it. Like go try it because it could work for you. Right. Um, self-deprivation tanks, uh, you know, hormone therapy, uh, cranial sacral, uh, pharmaceuticals, opiates, alcohol, marijuana, um, ambient sleeping, anything, stroke rehabilitation centers, um, concussion centers, going to CT brain banks. These are all things that you were trying to heal your brain and just get better. Yeah, man. I tried, I tried everything and I always... I always talked about it, you know, but what the mushrooms told me was for, for a very early part, like I was attacking the NHL. So I was, I was highlighting everything that was wrong with the league and why I was in this situation, right. And why I was still continuing rather than 
kind of leaving that and then going to create things that were good Mm -hmm. that could solve the fucking issue that is never going to get solved in the NHL because they're, they're just a bunch of lawyers and all they care about is liability and insurance. Right. And so they'll never fully admit like the NFL, they don't have the ability because they're in a bunch of lawsuits. So they're just going to deflect it. So the mushrooms, what, what happened was when I took them, uh, number one, like my body was completely rejecting them because I was like other people, I think comfortable in a victim mindset, comfortable that everybody around me didn't quite know. They all thought I was just a fucking asshole, but they didn't quite know how sick I was, how many symptoms I was suffering from. And my wife didn't really know because I didn't like let her fully in, but she knew that I was off. Right. She also saw me spending money and spending time to try to get better. Um, And so, but in this ceremony, the number one thing that came through was you have to stop highlighting the negative and you know, I know it sounds, uh, it sounds corny, but um, that I've never have ever said uh, that, like, I love myself or that, you know, you know, I'm enough, you know, like that. I never did that because I would always call myself a fucking pussy, a fucking loser. That's the way that coaches would yell at us to motivate us, right? Because that's the last thing that you want to be in hockey. And so... It showed me, and, and I felt it more so than anything, this, this unconditional love. Like when I pick up my kid mm. and, I, and I hug them, like it's like it just radiates through me and through them. And you lose that through growing up, you know. And it, um, it was an amazing experience. It was really difficult. Um, um, but that medicine gave me that unconditional loving feeling again. And... And then I had to take that feeling, right? And it connected different brain hemispheres and it did everything that I, I wanted it to do. And I came back to my wife, you know, two or three weeks later, looking like a completely different person. Um, the before and after pictures I've posted on Instagram or after six months or you can't even, you can't recognize me. And that's when the real work started, right? Where you have to implement what you feel, what you see into your life. Cause if I just went back into my life and started attacking the NHL again and this, that, so I started moving away from that and I started to really focus on my recovery. And then that's really when my whole life fucking changed, man, five years ago where I got healthy and then I was able to talk about what worked for me. It's $30 worth of fucking mushrooms that come from nature and so crazy yeah and um you know you know how it is it's helped so many veterans and so many other people that suffer from traumatic brain injury and all these other symptoms like women of domestic violence and you know not to mention obviously the the athletics um athletic community um but yeah it was uh it definitely saved my life man and it's governed and helped helped me um in everything that i do now with like what i talk about and creating companies and creating avenues for this to be a a real thing because the reality is it's a schedule one drug and there's there's a lot of people in jail for cannabis use and mushroom use that shouldn't be there and you know so how do you develop something and get it safely to market started to work on like policy and stuff and then 
um, you know, we created a drug development company, but, but yeah, that singular mushroom experience spiritually, that's the spirit side of it. Um, when, and let's talk about that. Let's talk about like the, just the ridiculous absurdity <laughs> that mushrooms are still considered a schedule one drug because a schedule one drug by definition, no medical value and highly addictive. Yeah. None of which is the case with mushrooms. It's quite the opposite. Like the, the amount of medical value that mushrooms can provide. Now it's like also anorexia, mm -hmm. right? Like all of these chronic autoimmune diseases that doctors can't find prescriptions for that can actually help as well as TBI. Yeah. Um, anxiety, depression, PTSD, the list goes on and they're 100% non-addictive. Like it's absolutely insane that we're still operating with this societal construct. Yeah. Right. Well, puts a lot of people in jail, man. And we have a for-profit prison system, right? So like that, the war on drugs with Nixon created a lot of wealth for a lot of people. And I mean, the way that I position it, I don't even really start with mushrooms. I start with cannabis. There's there's medical marijuana programs all over this all over the U.S. Right? and it's still a Schedule One. Uh, there's a drug called Marinol that was approved through the FDA, yet it and that's synthetic THC. Yet yeah. it's still a Schedule One. So it's, if there's an approved medicine through the FDA, which is the most rigorous scientific process on earth, then why wasn't it descheduled? Then there's CBD, which is a cannabinoid found in the cannabis plant. What does that treat? It treats childhood fucking epilepsy. Childhood epilepsy, taking away seizures with a cannabinoid that's approved is called Epidiolex. And people pay $33,000 a year through insurance to be on this drug for their children. When you could go and grab a seed and put it in a pot um, with two plants, grow enough CBD to, to sustain your whole family for well over a year for probably under three or 400 bucks. Um, nature, nature has all the answers. Bro. Yeah. It's crazy when like, when you really just take a step back on an intuitive level, right? Like on an intuitive level, if you actually just like get grounded, remove some of the stigmas that you might hold close to you, it's like, wow, like, this fungi has been around for tens of millions of years, has been used for tens of thousands of years, right? With zero adverse effects. And it literally is growing, like we're on, like there's mycelium beneath us right now. Absolutely. And it's, it's just crazy, like, and, and, I, and just to preface what you're saying, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like, for anyone who's listening and watching right now, I think it's really just important. Allow this conversation to, to marinate in your mind and, and peak curiosity, right? Like none of this shit is medical advice, of course, but it's just an opportunity for you to um, keep an open mind, keep an open heart. And if some of this stuff intrigues you, piques your interest, like dive deeper and do your own research. Absolutely. All right, fam, I am sorry to interrupt the show one more time, but you already know I don't have sponsors for this podcast. Really, I use this platform to just provide free value for you. That is my mission at Thrive University is just to provide you the education that we never experienced in our childhood. So 
I created a nutrition program that literally breaks down all of the necessary principles to optimize your gut health and your brain health through nutrition. And this course used to be $297, but I wanted to make it massively affordable and accessible for everyone. So it's now $29 for lifetime access to some of the best content I've ever created regarding nutrition. So if you're ready to take your life, your health to the next level, make sure to visit the link in the show notes to take advantage of that amazing opportunity. Right? Like, we're speaking from our experience and, and speaking from your experience, like your initial journey with mushrooms that really facilitated so much of this transformation in your life. What was the set and setting of that? Yeah, so it was a farm. And I mean, just going back, let's finish that point. The FDA has designated two, two different companies using the most active uh, ingredient in, in mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, which... Um, magic mushrooms, psilocybin. So they have designated these two companies with FDA breakthrough therapy status, which means that they do recognize that there probably is a medical value, right? But these things won't get descheduled until there's an actual medicine. And even then the DEA doesn't have an obligation to deschedule. So we could, we could just, yeah, let's put that, let's put that one to bed. Um, so what was your, what was your question? No, I was just curious. You said five years ago was your first mm -hmm. experience mm -hmm. with mushrooms on a farm in Denver, Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Decriminalized city. Former teammate saw me on Twitter and just like, Hey man, called me. He's like, just come here, learn about, uh, I was going to a farm to learn about like CBD genetics, these sorts of things. Uh, and, and he's like, I think this, I think this could really help you. And I'm, at that point, I was um, I was extremely suicidal uh, at the end of my rope. So I'm like, booked a flight, left the next morning. And so I went to this farm and they surprised me uh, with, hey, man, we want to we want to try something with you. And I said, I'm pretty much willing to try anything if you think it'll work. Uh, luckily, this is um, a Ph.D. biochemist at the farm and obviously he'd been experienced with a lot of different um, a lot of different substances, psychoactive substances, LSD, um, ayahuasca, you know, mushrooms and cannabis. And, um, you know, I got there and then they said, you know, we, we know you're suffering. And at that point I was like, yeah, you know, obviously you can read it on my face and we want to try something for you. Um, so I said, all right, well, what are we going to do? And they're like, well, we want to do five points you know, five grams of mushrooms. So I'm like, ah, fucking great. Let me go get the beer. I'll grab the cigarettes. And you know, and they're like, no, no, that's not, that's not what this is. I said, all right. Um, you know, well, they prepped me a little bit like throughout the day we didn't eat. Uh, so we fasted, which is really important when you do that amount of mushrooms. And, and yeah, we, we dropped in, uh, we were in, we were on his farm in this like ranch cabin style. It was really nice. Um, they put on 432 Hertz music and, and we, you know, started the ceremony. Uh, they lemon teched it, uh, which means, um, it's a technique where you can break down psilocybin into psilocin, which, uh, binds with your five H T two a receptors. So it's, um, just a more rapid onset. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just remember sitting down and, and my legs were just, you know, just shaking. My whole body started to just, 
rattle. Um, and I think it was a lot of who I knew I was or who I thought I was, was about to be just fucking shattered. And, but I was ready for it, you know, and, you know, I've since done probably 50 or 60 more high dose experiences, like some of my own, some in group settings. And the common theme that always comes up with mushrooms is, is it exasperates what's at the forefront, at least for me, what's at the forefront of my mind. Mm. So if I have like a problem that I want to bring to a ceremony or I want to be creative or I'm, I'm, I can't figure out what this angst is, I need to be prepared to ask the question, but to also be shown what's wrong, whether I like it or not. So in this instance, um, I was, I was basically shown that I was lost in life. It was my first time on the farm. It was about nine o'clock. It was kind of late when we took it. And, and this guy's like mom and there are other people on the farm that were in bed. And, uh, so I started dry heaving, uh, this purging, this, this energy, asking questions like, ah, like, you know, what is this? And, and so like, you know, I'm walking outside and they're trying to, you know, kind of calm me down in the beginning, but then they kind of let me go, you know, and I just was walking around the farm lost first time there came back inside into the kitchen. They were all standing there and, and it felt really good, you know, for, for a minute. And then I would start heaving again. So I would make that man, I must've made that loop. 40 or 50 times, you know, and I couldn't tell you in each lap what it was saying to me, but it was just a a greater notion that number one, you know, we're going to help get this energy out of you, you know, number two, you need to realize that you're the creator of your own hell. And if you want to get out of this, you can by just doing things a little bit differently you know? And so by the 50th time, it had been about two hours. Uh, and each time, not each time, but, um, about every hour, uh, this, this, um, this friend is my best friend now, uh, would come and, and just put his hand on my, on my back and be like, Hey man, how you doing? Are you okay? And I kind of intuitively knew that this was like something that I had to go through. So I wasn't, fighting it per se, but I had to just, I just had to do it. His hand felt like it was just super warm, inviting, loving. I was like, Oh, I'm like, well, this feels good. Then the dry heaving would go away and everything would, but then for whatever reason, I would get pulled into this isolated loop again, Mm. you know? And finally they, they kind of corralled me, uh, two hours in and they, they brought me in, they put like a different music set on, uh, which immediately just kind of like just brought down my energy to a point where it was almost sustainable where I could like lie down. And so, and I remember lying down um, on this couch, it was, it was an L couch so by you was my, was my former teammate. Um, uh, this PhD was in the middle and then I was over here and he used to have long hair. So, um, and I grew up Catholic. And so he, uh, I looked over and I was just kind of like, Oh, you know, like just <laughs> trying to enjoy it. But cause these guys are having a great time, you know? And, um, and he, and he, and he looked at me and, and I, I think I said, like, what is this, man? Like, why, you know, why'd you invite me here? And they're like, uh, they're like, man, like, we, 
then it kind of, I don't know how, how, how many times you've done high doses or like when you're in a group, when you, when you're, and you just have this communication, everything else kind of faded away. And he, he looked at me, he's like, we wanted you here because you have a really good special energy. You have a good heart and, and we wanted to help you. And I remember saying back to him and I'll never forget this. I said, why me? I'm such a fucking loser. Right. And he's like, you're not. You're not. We want you on this team. And as soon as he fucking said that, I don't know if he knew that that was going to like, I was like, it was like this, this feeling of uh, unconditional love. And I was able to lie down and just like completely enjoy the music for the next two hours and, and start laughing again for the first time in like three or four years. And Wow. It was, yeah, man, it was an, um, that was the first time you laughed in three to four years. Like truly laughed. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. I was in a lot of fucking pain, man. I was in a lot of pain on a good day. It'd be five symptoms on a, on a bad day. It would be, you know, 15. So when, when this, when this man who might've resembled Jesus in that moment, yeah. Yeah. He had long hair. Uh Like you're on. Anyways. Um, (laughs) yeah. He mentioned, team team yeah that right away just like put you in the space of like like feeling that brotherhood feeling that collective sense of love that you were talking about well we've talked about it like a little bit touched on it anyway one of the main reasons i think guys struggle when they leave hockey is because you leave a community and you leave one thing that you think is your purpose that's completely tied to your identity luckily that wasn't me like i never um, I never like fully identified with being a hockey player. I could care less of, about how many people were there and like people coming to watch. I just love that fucking sport. If it was mm. 10 people that I was able to do that sport and those rules were the same, I'm good. If it was 10,000, okay, great. Like it, it didn't, it never changed for me. But when I left, you know, I basically, I knew what I was doing, but I turned my back on that community, on all my friends. I lost a lot of friends uh, because I said a lot of, and rightfully so. Like I was right in a lot of instances that you know, I was just really fucking angry that I was in this position. I was really fucking mad that Steve Monitor, my best friend, fucking passed away from 19 fucking concussions. And I'm, you know, I'm still on that path to hold them accountable. Like nothing's, even though I've found this peace and, and my life has completely changed for the better, there's still uh, inside of me this, this, um, the one word is accountability. We were always accountable to ourselves in hockey. The coach would always say, you're a left winger. You're going to do your job as the left winger. You're going to be accountable to the other four guys on the ice and to the other 20 guys on the bench. Right? So, um, when things happen that, and they knew it was happening and they didn't step in to help this really amazing individual who, when I got to Chicago, like I got, I got sober off of opiates after two really long surgeries. And this guy showed me how to live like a happy, fulfilling life. Um, Steve, Steve, yeah. An amazing friendship for, for seven years. And when they didn't help him when he was suffering, you know, and they turned his back, I will never stop fighting. Cause if that were me and I passed away, I knew that he would do the same thing. So there's still a fight to to shine a light on everything that's wrong and still wrong with this league, uh, but not get consumed with it, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, this is probably the first time I've talked about this or thought about it, you know, in a couple months, you know, just because 
I'm in this different type of mindset, but don't get me wrong. Like when it's time to fight that fight, I'm fucking ready. Yeah. I'm always ready. That's, that's what like this whole time that you've been talking and you mentioned it multiple times, but that was like something that really resonated with me is just you, you shifted that mindset from victimhood to creatorhood. Mm -hmm. And you're like, I'm no longer going to just dwell on these fucking problems. I'm going to actually create solutions. Fucking do it, man. Right. And, and I think that, that if we, and, and that's just a powerful reminder for me too. Cause like when you see something fucked up happening, it's so easy to just dwell and put all of your energy in that space. And oftentimes it's, it's negative energy. Right. And it's not solution oriented. Yeah. And it's always rooted in the past. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, so if you're living in the fucking past, you're going to, it's pretty, it's, it's predictable what you're going to get because you've already lived it. There's no new opportunity. It's like when guys leave, like in their purpose, like, ah, like, and they're hurt. Right. Most guys never leave that sport. Yeah. Like healthy. I'm fucking walking out. I just won, you know, it's always a long road back to, Number one, finding out who you are away from the sport, you know, and then number two, like not getting in the way of everybody else around you who is supporting your life, you know, and, and then number three, like the biggest thing is like finding a purpose and then finding a new community to integrate into, you know, um, the NHL support you in any of that process in terms of like, okay, you retire in 2015, you contribute a lot to the sport, a lot to the league. Like, obviously they're not completely oblivious to your suffering or struggles as well as many other players, right. Who are in similar situations. Like, do they help at all with that transition to the next step or no? No, no. And I'm a smart guy. So what, like the things that I do is I booked meetings with the PA, like before I went full, turn my back on them and I'm going to shine a light was like, Hey, maybe I could work with these guys. Right. Cause obviously like some people were close to Steve and there's gotta be some decent people within this organization that could possibly help like with the transition program. And like I started a foundation called chapter five, which is just basically me and my wife, just taking my wife, taking the, the side of the, the spouse, right. Which is like, Hey, this guy's gonna, there's going to be some signs, you know, he's probably gonna, you might be drinking a little more. You might be not sleeping. Like, you know, these are kind of telltale signs that he's not eating, he's losing weight, might be depressed, anxious, like, um, but you got to understand he just lost everything that he thinks he is. Right. Um, his whole world is just gone. And most guys are tied to being that fucking dude, being the guy with the logo playing in front of 21,000 people, you know? So we started chapter five, we were helping guys through it. And then I started communicating with the NHLPA, like, Hey, I shouldn't fucking be doing this. I shouldn't be like trying to get donations. And you guys, you guys are sitting on like $40 million. Like, why don't you guys put a million dollars towards, you know, backing some former pro guys that, that are good at what they do in business away from the sport and help some of these guys transition and figure out who the fuck they are, you know? And, um, they just wouldn't do it, man. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, That's, they wouldn't fucking do it. So I booked like, probably four meetings, like spent my own money to go to Toronto. And, and at the end of the day, I think they were really concerned with, so on the ice, it was very unpredictable. And like, I just think that they were, they knew like deep down inside, you know, 
I was almost kind of using that to my advantage where maybe they'll, I'll force them to do this with me because if I don't, they know what the repercussions are, which is kind of me using my platform to just expose everything. And, um, I already kind of did that with the Stanley cup finals. I knew all the media was there. So I did a plea because my last year in the league, my son was born in 2014. Um, Steve passed away in February of 2015. And then I won my, I got my seventh diagnosed concussion in March in my last game ever in the NHL. And I won my second Stanley cup with the Blackhawks. So like it was a crazy fucking year, and and I just knew if I didn't use this time where people were actually watching hockey, because not a lot of media or anybody really covers it. So I used that time to do uh, the Players Tribune. Derek Jeter just came out with um, with with that outfit, and and so I I did like a kind of plea or a call to arms. In hindsight, that there pretty much sealed my fate. Like nobody was ever gonna work for me. I didn't realize it at the time, but nobody was ever going to work, work with me, you know, just because I'd already kind of, I said, there's a problem here, you know, uh, and we need help. So, um, so yeah. It's, it, it, it's just like for me as an outsider, it's like very frustrating to, to, and it's an exp, it's a similar experience that Wiz has with the VA, right? Like so many, <laughs> It, it, it literally like breaks my fucking heart to think about all of the men and women who literally put their life on the line to serve our country. And then when they come back from Iraq, they come back from all of the other places, the war zones, they come back and try to integrate into real life with their wife, with their kids, get a job. Like they're not getting any fucking support from the VA. They just expect them to, to somehow function normally with all of this PTSD and trauma. Buddy, and what's, what's even scarier about that is that I had all the fucking means in the world to get better. And I spent a lot of them. I spent about a half a million dollars. And I, st- and I still couldn't get better. So you imagine like veterans or women of domestic, just any they community. The, they don't have the financial have, resources I know, to do that. I know. And they have no support. You know, And athletes don't get a lot of sympathy. Right, because it's like, well, you're a rich fucking athlete. Like that's why they paid you all this money. That's not. That's not why. You know, if you know that that somebody's doing something to themselves in a league that you're governing, then you, the, at the very least, you should just tell that individual so that they could make an educated decision on whether they want to do that or not. They should tell. They should tell somebody who's about to enter into the army. Right. But I mean, these are two apples to oranges but the way that i view it and why it probably hits you the same way is because trauma is fucking trauma doesn't matter if you got it in war inside of a hockey rink playing in the nfl getting hit by your fucking spouse trauma affects human beings and at the end of the day we strip away veteran and hockey player and woman and man like you strip away the titles right if something happens to you that you don't like that you don't deal with, you're going to deal with it some other way. Drinking, addiction issues, isolation, feeling depressed, never telling anybody about it until one day you just fucking explode. These are all human issues, right? And they all affect us. Who's to say that my trauma was any worse than Wiz's, right? Or any less than Wiz's. I can't tell you that. I can only talk about, you know, my experience and, and, how it affected me and how it governed my life. But you see it, you know, you, we see it all around us. You know, there's a reason that there's 
hundreds or thousands of fucking addiction centers. You know, it's, it's super prevalent and people don't just get born and then grow up and all of a sudden, well, I'm going to, I'm going to use this, this alcohol to, you know, just drink excessively because nothing happened in my past. It just, it's, there's, there's usually some, some deep buried trauma in there for sure. Yeah. It's almost, and I, I really don't like to get too political, but unfortunately like everything these days seems to be like a political issue. Yeah. You know, when I was, you know, early in COVID, when I was just saying like, yo, these masks, social distancing, staying indoors, I'm not sure this is the best solution. Like at least get outside, move your body, get vitamin D, like take care of your immunity. Right. And somehow, and I was getting literally deplatformed shadow banned for literally just promoting health. And then when the vaccine came out, obviously that was a whole new <laughs> experience. Like, like I was getting called a fucking super spreader and all these things. And now as always, usually the truth has a way of revealing itself. And it's usually slower than the lie for sure. Of course. And, and like, just with what you were saying, and I never have spoke about this. I don't think I'm really qualified to speak about it, but it brings up all of these recent school shootings. Mm. And a lot of the people who react to school shootings by immediately just shitting on gun control and saying like, we need to do something about the guns. And maybe that's true. Maybe there does need to be some sort of regulatory action made in that area. I don't know enough about it to speak about it, but on a deeper root cause level, look at the people who are doing and committing these heinous crimes. Like how fucked up must you be to go into a school and just shoot innocent children and take their lives? Yeah. And it's by no means like justifying those people and how fucked up they are, what they're doing. But like, like we need to treat trauma more seriously, like from an earlier age. So this is where, like, this is where I'm like beyond fucking grateful that I get to like talk about what people are developing as far as like a new paradigm of medicine, right? right? What we have right now is, is are things that are made unnaturally in a lab to target certain receptors of which there's 12 billion that we don't fully fucking understand, but it's created this trillion dollar industry that, that we call a pharmaceutical industry. And so if we're talking about trauma, um, especially for veterans, like MAPS just did their second phase three study, which is a cure. It's curing individuals in this study 67% of the time that no longer qualify for a PTSD diagnosis. It's not just the drug, which is MDMA, more commonly known as ecstasy, but it is also the talk therapy. So in this country, in most countries, right, we, 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 we aren't doing enough uh, to catch people that are suffering from an early age and then bringing that into adulthood. And I mean, man, I, I don't know what the answer is and I don't know why people do the things that they do. Um, I couldn't imagine, you know, getting that type of call one day, but it is encouraging to know that 
with talk therapy that is commonly being done, that's commonplace, and adding some of these other medicines or tools into the talk therapy, it can help people process grief and completely change their outlook and perspective on life and how they interact with individuals, how they interact. If you're a war veteran and you, and you go to a park and all of a sudden a balloon pops, you're not, you're not going to have an episode, right? You're going to be able to deal with that almost like everybody else does. Almost like how I talk about my trauma now, it's like drinking a glass of milk. It happened. I'm grateful for it. It takes a lot to kind of get there, but these medicines help you get there faster. You know, like MDMA specifically will just shut down the amygdala, which is the fear response in our brain. And it'll allow a veteran um, or a woman of, of uh, sexual trauma or even a man uh, to access that trauma in a session like we're doing right now and, and move through that trauma and talk about that trauma without the heightened spike of emotion mm-hmm. and then process it much fucking faster. Right. And, and you're seeing this over a 12 week period. Yeah. You know, so there's like a lot of really, really amazing, exciting things that are, that are coming to market that aren't like targeted at, at, yes, we call it PTSD, but it's not symptom management. It's curative, which is, I think, I think is fucking beautiful. Yeah. And and it's also interesting just piggybacking about like MDMA, Mm -hmm. right? Because I think, and I, and I had the same belief that like ecstasy burns holes in your brain. It like fries your brain. Well, it turns Um, out, they made them do those studies. You're damn right. The FDA made them do those studies and yeah, yeah, they poked a hole out of it. Exactly. Like it turns out that a lot of the original evidence and research about MDMA burning holes in the brain, it wasn't actually MDMA. It was actually methamphetamines that they were using. Mm Mm-hmm. And what's funny about that is that methamphetamines in the form of Adderall and Ritalin are commonly prescribed to six, seven, and eight-year-olds. So it's just absolutely ironic like that this compound that actually has been proven to destroy the dopamine centers in your brain and is highly addictive and just has no potential benefits to actually address the root cause is legal, is making hundreds of millions of dollars for multiple pharmaceutical companies, and is being prescribed to kids that are your son's age. Trillions, trillions of dollars, for and sure. Exactly, and, and, and then also like MDMA too. I actually happened to do MDMA this past weekend. Um, <laughs> but, but for me- And you can use it therapeutically and recreationally. There's nothing wrong with that. What's really important, especially with MDMA though, since we're talking about it, is like, in the form of ecstasy, like a pressed pill. Yeah. You, I, I personally like would never take that these days with like how rampant fentanyl is right yeah. now. And like, it's being put in everything. So I just wouldn't want to take any chances. This was like an unbelievable source from Amsterdam, but like MDMA for me, it is such a heart opener to the point where it opened up this whole new capacity to love, Mm. like to just love myself, but to also love other people that I don't even know. And not in a weird way, in a way like, yo, like I fucking see you. Like, like, even though I don't know you, like, I know you have a unique story. I know you have different 
emotional wounds just like I do. And I fucking see you, bro. Like yeah. straight up. Yeah. And if we could operate from that capacity, from that level, like I can't even imagine where the world would be. Yeah, that's a, I think, like I've had this conversation the other week. Um, I think that everybody thinks that the whole world is on the phone, is in Instagram. And that's everybody's experience. It's just not. Yeah. Like there's not that many people. There's 8 billion people in the, in the fucking world. Yeah. There's a couple hundred million on these fucking social media platforms. And we think that that's the way it fucking is. And it's just not, you know, and the further that we can get away from like, from what we're seeing, like on these platforms, like there's, there's designated times in the day that I make sure that like my phone is down and I don't use this thing to scroll. I just don't have time. Um, I just use it. I try to use it for good, but like, it's really important for people to understand that this isn't indicative of, of the whole world. It's just, you know, it's just a kind of a, a bit of a snapshot, you know? Oh, of course. Yeah. And whoever owns it, is producing the algorithm that they want you to see based of based off of who their biggest backers and funders are, right? So it does get deduced to an even lower level. Um, but if you control the media, like it's always been, you control how how people think and and what and what they do. Yeah, man. Well, I mean, it's it, and I'm glad you're using your platform honestly for just being authentic and sharing your human experience, like sharing your struggles, sharing what's working for you, sharing what's not working, sharing your family, because going back to what we were speaking about and school shootings and just all these people who have their individual trauma, whatever capacity that's at, is it all starts with you. Yeah. Right? Like before you change the world, before you desire to change anyone else, you got to go within. And the fact that you have been on the journey that you've been on the last five, six, seven years, more than that, right? And you did that deep inner work and you pushed through the pain and discomfort. And now that work is allowing you to show up in a present way for your children. Yeah. And those kids are going to grow up with that level of love, with that level of connection, with that level of presence. And, the, and, and, and that's really where it begins, in the, in the household. Absolutely. So, like, I acknowledge you, bro, because, like, as men, as, as fathers, as brothers, as leaders, it's our responsibility to do that deep inner work, heal our shit from the past that's holding us back so we don't pass it on to our kids. Yeah, man. Yeah, big time. I mean, that was one of my biggest motivators, right, to getting, to getting better. Is like, and that was one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to kill myself was because I didn't want my kids to see me acting this way and thinking that it was fucking normal. So I know a lot of people think that like suicide or suicidal thoughts are, or tendencies are, are selfish, but like the way that I was thinking about it, it was almost like I was unburdening my family, you know, and everybody around me. Cause I knew that I wasn't, I, I knew I wasn't acting, acting the right way, you know? Um, and like to getting back to the other point of like, you know, I think we have a tendency, especially like in this like psychedelic industry to, to say that one thing's wrong and one thing's bad and then one thing's horrible and one thing's right, you know? And 
the way that I like to think about life now is that everything is a game, you know, and the FDA is a game. They give you very strict guidelines of how to develop a medicine. And if you fit into those guidelines, then you can develop a medicine if you raise two or $300 million, right? And then policy is another way, right? Where you can go state level policy, federal level. We've been, we've been to Capitol Hill and, and you can introduce legislation to change rules in your state to be able to just allow you to have this medicine mm. so that you don't have to go to jail, you know? Um, and then there's, there's other ways to do it as well, which is like these adult therapeutic use programs, again, like a state initiative run initiative, right. Where, where you can create like measure one Oh nine in Oregon and prop one, two, two that got passed in Colorado and house bill number one that we just introduced into Illinois, you can create these frameworks where now you have this, this policy where, okay, I can grow and gift and gather great, but I can't sell it. Right. So that's decriminalized nature. Um, and over here with this adult therapeutic use, it's creating frameworks where I'm going to test this psilocybin, right? So there's a testing facility license that, yes, you have to pay for. There's therapists that are going to get trained that have to sit with people, right? There's service centers that need to get licensed to be able to house either the manufacturing or the therapists that are going to do this training, Right. And then there's the manufacturing houses that are going to grow the mushroom and you're going to test it. But some people want that. Some people want to fucking know where their medicine comes from and they want a regulated framework. And you, and then you have the FDA in the middle and then you have this, these, these decriminalized nature people and they're all, if you're doing the FDA thing, both of them hate you. If you are doing this thing, this guy over here hates you. Right. If you're, and I've never like fully understood that because what I get off on is problem solving. Like, why can't I do this to give people, the people that do want to grow their own medicine, gather it and gift it. I'm like, who the fuck am I to say if I believe in that more and shit on this way? Uh, yeah. Why would you shit on me going through the FDA pathway to get a medicine from a doctor that's covered by insurance to a person. Yeah. Cause some people will not access this medicine unless it's through a doctor. And then some people won't access it unless it's through like an adult. This is a full spectrum medicine over here. These adult therapeutic use programs, which is amazing. Right. Which yeah. is like, so this whole ecosystem and the way that I like kind of govern my life, I, dude, I fucking introduced legislation. I started a biotech company. I'm a part of measure 109, prop 122, the house, like all of it, you know, because all three of those things will, will most undoubtedly have the biggest impact. You know, like when you ask yourself the question, which I've honestly never asked, but like, how do you change the world? Cause it's such a fucking daunting thing to fucking ask. I'm just like, all right, if I wake up today, can I help one person? If I can do that, how can I do that? Mm. Right. And so I, I push a lot of different things with the ultimate goal of like, hopefully helping to alleviate somebody's suffering, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, you're like, you're, I think that's the mindset you have to have is just like, like really, really just taking actions every day that are in alignment with what you believe in and knowing that by doing that on a consistent basis, it's going to create those ripple effects. Yeah. And I agree with you. Like 
Well, man, I see, and sorry to cut you off, but I see you get a ton of shit yeah, yeah. on social media, right? Yeah. And listen, man, I've been in this industry and on social media longer than you have, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, if people have time out of their day to shit on you for yeah. talking about what you fucking believe in, like, you don't even have to answer those fucking people, oh, man. I, I, I don't. It's like, God, you know, well, dude, I, I, I dealt with it my whole fucking career. So you just keep doing what you believe in, you know, you're extremely authentic. And I mean, I don't think we'll ever sit here and be able to like count, you know, the number of people that you've been able to help. And man, I'm sure you've helped Thank more you, people than you ever fucking know. Thank you, bro. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, honestly, man, like I, what I think about is exactly what you just said is like, I take because I've tapped into this medicine and one of the greatest gifts that mushrooms, ayahuasca and other plant medicines have given me personally. Have you done Aya? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the best things that they've opened up for me is like actual levels of real compassion. So when someone type shit behind a screen, Steve-O 69 says that I'm a fucking moron and that artificial sweeteners are actually healthy or that mushrooms are a drug and you know, I'm just a drug addict. Like right away, I, 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 I go to a place of compassion. Like, wow, this person clearly doesn't know the facts, but they're also just taking time and energy to write this malicious thing behind a screen. Right. I get so, the image of a sheep. Yeah. You know, it's it, like, and, you and, know, but, but you gotta those, those do are your the own same research. people that are hurting, bro. Like yeah. it goes back to hurt people, hurt people. Like I understand if someone is going to talk shit behind the screen on social media or even just talk shit behind my back in real life, that person's in a dark place and they have no place in my life. And I'm not going to play their game and like throw shade back at them because I know they're already hurting. Yeah. And my words might send them over the edge to them harming themselves. So rather, like, let me actually see how I can operate from compassion and maybe even just, like, reply with a kind message. Yeah, yeah. You I know? mean, listen, and, man, and, and I think we're in a world where, like, people follow other people and they're, I think they're expected to, like, you're a complex individual and so am I. Yeah. You're never, ever going to know everything about me and you're never, ever going to fucking like everything about me. And it doesn't fucking matter to me, you know, like yeah, if facts. you like the core values of, of what we're talking about, you don't have to agree with everything. And you also don't have to, if you don't agree with it, you don't have to highlight that you don't agree with it. You know, you just move on. And we're in this world, this weird fucking space of like, well, I don't agree with that. Now I have to say something. And I always come from it like, you know, even in, so now in the, in the healing world in the psychedelic world, or if I was talking about hockey, you know, it's like, okay, if you want to have a discussion about it, what have you done in hockey? Like qualify yourself, you know, and then I'll qualify myself and then we'll have a discussion about it, you know, yeah. and that goes <laughs> in like fucking real life too, man, Thanks. you know, or else I just, I can't waste my fucking hot air, man. Well, it, 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 it always comes back to it for me. Like when I do look at a lot of people who leave these comments, it's kind of funny, dude. I've scrolled your thing, man. Bro, I've like, fucking laughed. Like, I've had bro, some good chuckles with a couple. That, that, that honestly, <laughs> that great. honestly, a majority of the people who are leaving these same malicious comments, like on social media or whatever, 
they're not healthy. Like, just look at them. I look at their profile picture and I'm seeing like three chins or like whatever bad skin. And I'm not shitting on those things, but I'm the type of person that I'm always going to take advice from people who are actually qualified to speak about something. If I want to know about being a pro athlete, playing fucking hockey, overcoming suicidal thoughts, addiction, I'm going to talk to you because you have experienced those things at the highest level. If I want to learn about being fucking wealthy and building a massive business, I'm going to talk to someone who's done that. If I want to get health advice, I want to make sure that the person themselves is fucking healthy. Yeah. But unfortunately, like so many of the people that are delivering advice specifically when it comes to health they're fucking overweight they're depressed they're riddled with anxiety and it's because maybe they have the paperwork to qualify them to uh, prescribe medications but they haven't actually done the work themselves and that's really what i care about i know it's what you care about um daniel i'm curious to know though because you mentioned like self-love and that really resonated like when you when you mentioned that when you had that experience with mushrooms, you're really able to experience this level of love for yourself that maybe you had never experienced before. And it kind of reminds me of Aaron Rodgers sharing a similar sentiment with his experience with mushrooms and ayahuasca, how it kind of gave him that level of love for himself that was completely independent of his identity as a quarterback, as an MVP, as a Super Bowl champion. Um, so I'm curious to know, like, what does self-love feel like to you now? Um, yeah, I. it's just being present, you know, waking up. One of my things was like sleeping in a lot, you know, and just kind of isolating. And um, so now it's like routine and and discipline and you know even this morning like the brains oh well you rode the bike yesterday well okay so don't do anything today well no i'm gonna i'm gonna go for a run you know i'm gonna move when a lot of the things for me were opposites and it's not as if this this voice in my head has gone away um but it's like now it just doesn't it's not followed by you fucking loser or, Mm. you know, it's still there. It's just, it's much more gentle, I guess, the way that I describe it. And cause we all have the voice, you know, um, we all, there's a snooze button for a reason, you know, we all make a decision as soon as we wake up, whether we want to actually get the fuck up or, or hit snooze. Some days it's easier than others. You know, um, for me, it got harder when, you know, I would be eating sugar. I'd smoke three joints before I went to bed and like just this overindulgence of, of things that I know were going to hurt me the next day, but you know, I still did them. So, um, and I still have, don't get me wrong. Like there's days where, you know, I'll go fucking, I'll go eat a bag of potato chips. I'll like be a human being, you know, I'll, I'll eat some sugar, you know, I'll have a few drinks, you know, I'll still, I'll still live life, but it's just not in excess, you know, and it, it's not even really like a, a very conscious thing anymore. It's just, it's something that's kind of like evolved, uh, over the time that I've, 
you know, number one, use this medicine and also like use this routine. Like I know exactly what makes me fucking feel good. And I just, and I do that. And if there's other things that come up in my life that, um, you know, that I have to do where I know I'm going to get out of this routine. Well, I just, I don't dwell on, ah, well, fuck it. You know, we're traveling with the kids for four days. I don't need to work out. I don't need to bring, no, like I bring my shoes. I wake up before everybody else and I go to the fucking gym, you know, and I, I find time to put it in, you know, put the work in. Cause I know exactly what makes me feel good. So that's self-love, man. It's not like, it's not for me, like, you know, <laughs> This like lovey, dovey, yeah, yeah, yeah. but still like what I just described to me is like it's a pretty damn good, pretty damn good life if you can if you can stick to it. And then it's fucking years, man. You know, it's not hours or days. Like this is like a yearly fucking thing that I've had to train myself to get back into doing it. I'm just now. This is year five. I'm just as soon as I moved to Florida been here for like a year and three months my life has completely fucking changed for the better because i'm i can fucking be outside I, I can be in the sun i i um everything seems healthier you know like the food choices just i don't know man i've never i've never been this happy in my life you know and it's just so easy to fucking stay in shape and uh you know be outside and enjoy the enjoy enjoy life yeah I am happy that you moved to Florida. <laughs> it's it's definitely it's definitely the vibe. And I think what you said about self-love, bro, is like really what self-love truly deeply is at the core of it is doing the things that actually support your health, your healing, your longevity because especially in your position you know, you're about to have your fourth child, right? Like there's no way you're going to be able to show up in a powerful present way for your kids. If you're not pouring into yourself first, there's other dads in my neighborhood that like my wife's amazing. She's got her own interior design job and she leaves me alone with the three kids. Like while I have, you know, probably four or five entrepreneurial projects and I run a publicly traded company and, you know, like, and I'm, I wake up, take the kids, take the kids to school. We walk, scooter. Sometimes I drive, um, pick them up. You know, plan my calls around two and make sure that I know exactly they're going to be hungry, so I have food ready, and then I make them dinner. And I do that for like four or five days in a row. And these dads are like, "How the fuck do you do that? Like, I can't, I can't take care of one kid." And the way, the way that I do it, and the and is um, is just like using the tools that I have, like as soon as I, I have my bike on my fucking Jeep. If I drive them that day I drop them off and I go right to the fucking trail and I bike, you make it, you make it, I as make time as possible. It's not too. fucking easy. It's because, not negotiable no. too. And everything that we have in this life is geared towards making it easy and making us fucking sick. There's a reason that candy's at fucking eye level for kids at every single grocery store. You know, there's a reason that it's like, that it's hard to find good food. You know, um, everything is aimed towards making it easy, comfortable and making convenient. us sick, you know? Yeah. So this path is not the path for everybody, 
it's by far the most fucking rewarding path you could ever imagine. Thank God I have it in me because of just my past rigorous discipline and, and uh, attention to fucking detail. Like if you didn't have that, you wouldn't survive a fucking day in my shoes. Um, and I did that for fucking 13 fucking years professionally. I did it for even longer as a kid, you know, do you feel, do you feel like, and as we wrap up here, I'm just curious, like, you know, you retired in 2015, so it's been eight years roughly. Um, with your life now and everything that you're building and creating, do you feel more content and more fulfilled than any time, like in your playing career? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, by far. Um, if nobody ever mentioned that, you know, that I had won two Stanley Cups and other than like my kid now getting older and he thinks it's fucking cool and he's got you two and, and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. that's a cool thing to, does he watch your fights? Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's a good thing to have in the arsenal when you got, oh my gosh. when you're about to have three daughters, you know, it's like, oh, you know, yeah. here, go take a look at this. It's buddy. really dope. I feel like <laughs> to have the oldest one be a boy. Yeah. Cause he's like, cause he's like closer in age to you. So you guys have those one-on-one sessions and like you have a big bro for your daughters. Yeah. 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 Which I think is also super valuable. It's fucking great. Yeah, man. I'm, like I said, everything, everything in my life has, it hasn't come easy, but when it has come, like I'm definitely fucking blessed, like big yeah. time. Big we didn't time. even really get a chance today to talk into like all your entrepreneurial adventures. Um, we'll definitely do a round two at some point. Yeah, that's but, fine. But I really want to give you just like the opportunity. If there's anything else on your heart, on your mind that we didn't get to today, what's your message? Like, is there anything else that that you want to address before we grab a bite to eat? I don't think so. No. I mean, I think we covered a lot. Um, you know, if I could, I'll look in the camera. Like if anybody's going through what they think is a hard time, um, just know that it's, it's necessary and just like good times, hard times end. And usually with hard times, you get a lesson. You know, think about, think long and hard about why that was present and, and then how to either change it, um, or implement it into making yourself feel happy. And it's not, it's not fucking, it's not hard. This life isn't hard. Don't make it more complicated than it is. Do the things that make you fucking feel good. Hang around the people that make you feel good. And it is a short life. You know, you don't have a very long time, so try your best to enjoy it. Well, oh yeah. So. I'm really grateful. We had the opportunity to, to do this, bro. And I'm really excited to just build a friendship and Same, see how we can co-create yeah, and, and build a massive impact in the world. Um, all right, fam. Thank you so much listening. Make sure to follow Daniel on all the links in the show notes. We're going to be creating some content together Share this shit on your story. Like, let us know what the biggest takeaway and divine download that you had during this conversation was. And we'll make sure to repost those tags. Thank you so much, y'all. Daniel, you're a fucking legend. And uh, let's eat. Much let's love. Go. Peace. <laughs> Woo! Oh, my goodness. You made it until the end of this podcast. And I'm so grateful for you just really committing to your health and to your transformation. So just take a moment to appreciate and acknowledge yourself for making it until the end. And I really hope that you take at least one thing 
that you heard today and implement it into your life because knowledge is not power. Knowledge is potential power. It requires you to take action and implement these different practices and principles into your life. And I'm here to support you every step of the way. So again, word of mouth is my oxygen. I don't do this for money. I just do it to cultivate community and help you enrich your life. So if you gain value from the show, share it with a friend, share it on your Instagram story, tag me at Coach Jeremy 305. And if you want to see the video version of this episode, go check out our YouTube channel because again, when you see things, sometimes it brings them to life and you can really see different parts of this conversation and the relationship dynamic with each guest. So again, fam, thank you. Thank you so much. You already know what time it is. It's time to take action on your dreams and thrive.